I know you have your Bible in front of you, at least I hope you do, or whatever you're using to read the Scripture, a smart device perhaps. I'd like you to take your Bible and uh, open it to Joel, that's in the Old Testament, Joel, um, and uh, let's go to chapter 2. In a few minutes, I'm going to be walking through the, the reading of Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 32, and making points as I go along. Um, but just for now, open it and uh, keep your finger there, um, and we will look at that in just a few moments. Let me ask you a question first. Have you ever heard of a concept called moralistic therapeutic deism? If you've been around Heritage for a while, you have heard that term. It's also known as MTD. Now, the term was introduced back in a 2005 book. It was based on a very large research project. The name of the book was uh, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of Teenagers, and it was co-authored by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist. And what they said was that this moralistic therapeutic deism is not a new religion, but it is commonly held beliefs, and they were saying by many of our teenagers back in 2005, but I believe as we look at that, that you can see it is a commonly held belief even today, and it is not brand new. So let me define it for you and see if it will help you any to look inside your, your own heart and see if somehow you might have slipped into this belief structure called moralistic therapeutic deism. In this system, it's a belief in God. Now, I'm going to say little g with quotes around it, some kind of a divine being, that's the deism part, who exists, this God, little g with quotes around it, this God exists to make me happy. That's the therapeutic part of it. So God, my concept of God, is that he is a therapist or a life coach who wants me to be happy. And there's one more element, the moralistic part of it. He also wants me to be good and kind and fair. Basically, he wants me to be nice. Now, the upshot of this in this belief system that many of our people in the land have is that good people are blessed by God in this life, and then they go to heaven when they die. I said this a few minutes ago, this is not a new system of belief. It goes all the way back to the garden. Paul recognized it when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 25, and he spoke of how people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is to be honored, who is to be glorified, who is blessed forever. Now, it's my guess that this is exactly what Judah had drifted into, I should say back into, and that prompted Joel to write, his book to them. God is calling his people both then and now from those kinds of false religious concepts or beliefs today as he was then, believing the lie and worshiping and serving the creature. 
In other words, saying, hey, life is about me. Life is about my happiness or true faith in Christ, true religion, which is believing in the truth and worshiping and serving the Creator. Life is about God and His glory. He is truly blessed forever. Amen. Now, going back, let's do a little bit of review after this introduction. We're going to see that the, the key, the, the theme, the, the heart of this book is found in chapter 2 and verse 12. And I'm just going to use this one phrase, in the, the second phrase in that verse. And the theme of the book is, return to me. Joel ministered in a time when a locust plague and a severe drought were devastating the land. God's people had apparently assumed that God, remember the little g? And, and let me remind you of something too. Israel, off, Israel often slipped into idolatry. And idols are not just things that are made out of stone or wood or metal. There are gods or idols that can be made out of the stuff of our own imaginations. And so whatever it was, they assumed that this God existed to bless them and to make them happy. It was their right because, after all, they were God's chosen people, no matter how corruptly they lived. But God was gracious, and through Joel, he reminded them through these natural disasters that abundant life is found only in a relationship with him, with the living God. And Well, that's a word to us today, how often we ignore that relationship. I'm speaking to Christians now because this book was written to God's covenant people. How easy it is for us to ignore the relationship or just allow it to fade. You see, you really can, Christian, you can unplug from God and you can still be a nice person. But when you do unplug from God, the life-giving power source, it's not going to be long before things in your life get awfully dark. So Joel's remedy to all of this is simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. Let me say it again from chapter 2, verse 12. It's repent. It's return to me. Now, the question is, would they do it? That's the question that we posed last week. Would they listen to Joel? Would they hear what he is saying? Would they respond? But also the question is, will we? Now, with that, let's pick up our study in chapter 2 and verse 18. I want to read verses 18 through 20, and then we'll comment on those verses and move on. Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous or zealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach 
among the nations. I will remove the northerner. Now, let me just stop and say here, without too much explanation, that I'm still taking this as a picture. And uh, Joel paints a lot of word pictures, but this is a picture of the destruction of the locusts. I will remove the invaders, the northerner, far from you. I will drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. And what's going to happen when all of those locusts die and their carcasses are washed up on the shore? The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. So the first part of this focus for the rest of the chapter that we'll be looking at this morning is the Lord's zeal, and out of that, His pity for and His deliverance of His people. Go back to that very first verse that I read, verse 18. The then looks back to the now in verse 12. Now, repent. Now, return to me, He says. Then the Lord became jealous or zealous. And this is an indication that the people did hear the warning and that they took it seriously, and that they repented, or they returned to the Lord with all of their hearts. My beloved brothers and sisters, God expects His people, true believers, His covenant people, to respond immediately to His call. Last week, if you'll remember, I talked about the fact that when we delay our obedience, delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. Partial obedience is what? It is disobedience. So God expects His people to respond immediately, and He, as the loving Father that He is, He responds immediately. Let's look at a parallel passage in the Old Testament Malachi, written at the end of the Old Testament, was probably, we don't know exactly, but probably about a hundred years after the writing of Joel. But the theme is basically the same. In fact, the theme was always the same through the Old Testament and carries into the New Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and several verses out of that. Listen to what Malachi said that parallels with what Joel is saying. For I, I love this. I, the Lord, do not change. God says, I, I don't change. You change, but I do not change, O children of Jacob. And that is why, therefore, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts, I will pour out a blessing and I will rebuke the devourer for you. Now, hang with me if you would, please. I am not sliding into the so-called prosperity gospel. And I say so-called because the prosperity gospel is really not the gospel. So I'm not sliding into that teaching with the, the guaranteed blessings of your best life now. 
if you just have enough faith in your faith. What this is pointing to in Joel, the the promise, it's pointing to a far greater and eternal blessing that we're going to see as we read through the next parts of this chapter. Let's move on. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 21, verses 21 through 24. Follow along with me. Listen to this. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad. Be glad, O children of Zion. Now, I want you to remember that the situation right now has not changed. Their whole culture has still been devastated by the swarm of locusts and by the drought that has happened. But he says in the midst of that, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured out for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and with oil. You know, there is something. I'm going to say this first of all in the context of Joel and then bring it up to date. There is something that is far worse and has far greater impact than a horde of locusts. There is something that has far greater impact than what is going on around us right now with the coronavirus and everything else that is involved, and that is the virus of fear. I know you hear it. I I hear it all around me, And, and I don't know all of the places from which it's, it's coming. I think a large part of that is from the media itself. But, but here is what I'm hearing, even with Christians, talking about fear, so much fear. Now, now, parenthetically, I am not saying that we should not be appropriately concerned and take the measures that we need to take to be as safe as we can, okay? I'm not saying that, that we're not doing that. But there is a fear, and and as best I can tell, it's a fear of death. The Bible says very clearly that, that people who do not know their God, they are held in slavery to the fear of death all of their lives. I shared a few weeks ago that if we make it out of this alive, which most of us will, do you understand if we don't die now, all we're doing is delaying our death. And and so Joel is saying, don't fear. Right in the midst of this pandemic, don't fear, but prepare. And I would say prepare yourself with the good news, the salvation. And then once we are believers in Jesus Christ, when I first became a Christian, I, I had a lot of fears. Or I'll say when I first came back to the Lord Jesus after wandering for a number of years, as a young man, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, had, had a great, great impact in my life. And I would look at the things that I would fear, 
and, and I had this verse in my heart, and I would say it over and over again, for you, O oh God, have not given me a spirit of fear, but you have given me the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. I've got a book on my table among the different books that I'm reading. I haven't made it all the way through it. It's a classic by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled Spiritual Depression. Here's what he says. Christians ought to be the most joy-filled people on earth. Now, he's saying that recognizing all of the things that Christians go through. He goes on to say one of the worst testimonies in the Christian faith is a depressed, sour attitude. Even in the midst of the locust invasion, folks, or the coronavirus pandemic, or anything else that preceded that that was going on in your life, or anything else that will come after it that it will go on in your life, ought to be met with a sense of joy, knowing that God is in the heavens, knowing that God is on His throne for His glory and for our good. Let's move on. In the text, chapter 25 and 26, one of my personal favorite verses, again, going back to that time as a young man when I had wondered, when I had been disobedient, rebellious to the Lord. And this verse, verse 25, meant an awful lot to me. Let, let me share this with you. Let's just read through it. I will restore to you, now listen to this, I will restore to you the, the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty in that restoration and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is absolutely one of the most amazing, one of the most stunning pictures of the hope of salvation that you and I can ever hang on to. And whether it has been for you, Christian, you can look back on your life, or maybe you're not a Christian right now, and, and you're hoping that you will hear something in this message that, that will give you something to hang on to for the future. Listen to me, no matter how many years you have spent in sin, I'm talking about gross sin and rebellion, gross in terms of just bad and gross in terms of how much. Or maybe it hasn't been necessarily gross sin that people would look at you and say, oh, th that's a down in the, in, in the gutter kind of guy. Maybe it's the years that you've spent in pursuit of the American dream instead of God. You know, I, I'm convinced that the midlife crisis that we hear so much about, I remember being a young man and anticipating hitting about 40 and, and the, the midlife crisis that I heard that would come somewhere in my, my 40s, the, the age 40 to 50 age range. And now I'm, uh, I, I'm significantly beyond that, but I still see evidence of that. What, it, what is a midlife crisis anyway? 
I'm going to say this for a Christian, but I think for non-Christians too, it applies. It's when all of a sudden you begin to realize that you have worked for something and everything that you have worked for, and I'd say this to men or women, whether it's a, a career, a job, or, or, or maybe uh, the, the place of being in the home and kids and all of the rest of that, everything that you've worked for that does not have God as its focus is just as Paul would call it, wood, hay, and stubble, and that it will be burned up. And the likelihood is that down the road, years from now, no one will remember those things that you've done. And no one will care. James Dobson is a name that's recognizable to most of you. And some of you have heard this story that years after he had attended college, he received a, a package in the mail. He opened the package and he was surprised to find his old college trophy of winning um, I, I guess it was a championship, a tennis championship. And he was puzzled until he read the note inside, which was a friend of his, and said, believe it or not, I found this in the trash bin behind our college campus. They were cleaning out the trophy case and getting rid of the old trophies so they would have new room for the new trophies. And Dobson said he realized then, today's trophy, if it's not a trophy for the Lord Jesus, today's trophy is tomorrow's trash. I think back to my own days that I've alluded to a couple of times in this message, and, and I think of the, the very, very bad decisions that I made while a college student. Living moralistic, therapeutic deism, you can throw the moralistic out though, just feeling like that I was living for myself, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, making bad decisions. And I wondered when I came, when I turned back to Christ, God, can you restore? And it was then when this verse really had some impact. It was almost as if the, the Lord, and he showed me along the way, he didn't promise to restore the things that had been eaten up. He promised to restore the years that the locust had eaten. For example, I had a relationship with a young lady. It cratered, it fell apart. And after I turned my life back to the Lord, I, I prayed. I prayed, Lord, restore that relationship. You know, I, in looking back, now that I have hindsight that is a lot more 2020 than it was at that point in my young life, I would agree with Garth Brooks, that famous theologian who said, thank God for unanswered prayer. Here's what Joel is reminding us of in this verse, particularly verse 25 and going on into verse 26. And I put a line between restore and satisfied. You shall eat in plenty and you shall be satisfied. You, you could mark that in your Bible. Joel reminds us that when we follow Christ, we do not have to live in spiritual scarcity. We are getting right now a foretaste. It's not our best life now. It is a foretaste of the coming restoration of all things, that fullness of satisfaction 
that is yet future at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And here would be my exhortation to you if you're going to experience that fullness of satisfaction at the marriage feast of the Lamb, folks, just make sure that your chairs are scooted up to the table. You know, one of the things that I miss right now in these days, in this season, about going to Sam's, I'm not a member of Costco yet, may never be. I'm sure that they do the same thing. But one of the things that I miss is that used to on the weekends when I would go into Sam's, they would have samples. And, and I always look forward and hope that I wouldn't get there too early or too late, but I'd get there just in time to just make my way, pick my way through the samples. And, and I was always just eager to find something that I liked and then take the, the little, little paper cup, cute little paper cup, and take the little plastic spoon or, or toothpick and take a taste. Now, folks, this is a good example of what, what Joel is talking about here. This is just a foretaste. That's all it is at Sam's. What they want you to do is take that little sample, that foretaste, and then they want you to go over to the freezer or, or to the, the aisle, and they want you to pick up the, the, the full meal, the full food that is represented so that you can be satisfied. What we have here, as good as it is, is only a small sample of what we will experience in that day, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Verse 27, I, I just want to read that by itself, and, and we'll look at the, the, the focus of the promised presence. And This is beautiful. This is where we begin to jump into the, the future. And Joel begins to look forward to something. He says in verse 27, You shall know, now watch this, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, of my people, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. The greatest satisfaction is not the things in our lives that have been devoured and that will be restored. The greatest satisfaction is a personal relationship with the living God. And that's what Joel points to in this verse. The wonder of, of God living in the midst of us, in our own lives. You see, those who reject Jesus, and, and again, if you're listening to this, I know that most of you who are listening are part of our fellowship and, and maybe a few others listening who are believers in Jesus Christ, but you've got to understand that if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe some people that you know are not, those who reject Jesus will never know the wonder, the power, and the satisfaction of knowing and being in the living presence of God. And that's why non-Christians are consistently unable to be satisfied. God loves to be with his people, and he loves for his people to be with him. And I will add one more thing to that. God loves his people to be with one another. Now, let me just insert this here, and I'm not going to give a full explanation that's going to come this next week in written form. And I want you to be watching 
for that. But with the, the restrictions being somewhat relaxed and lifted, the elders and the staff, staff have looked at this and, and, and looked at everything that we need to do to ensure safety, but, but being eager to get back together. We have set May 17th as our first corporate meeting back in these facilities. Now, let me just say this. It's not going to look like what it did the last Sunday before we dismissed and went into the, the video kinds of worship. But it's a step, and it will come in phases, and we are excited about what God will be doing in those days. Let me read this, this last passage of Scripture, and this is where Joel really jumps about eight to 900 years. We don't know exactly when Joel was written, but he jumps into the future. And let me just say this. The focus here is on the promise of fullness and power. And looking at this and studying for this, there is absolutely no way that I can get through the, the, the whole thing today. And so what I, I'm going to do is just give you the thrust of it, because there is so much going on that, that I want to come back and do a sermon just on this passage, verses 28 through 32, as an addendum. This will be after our study concludes in the book of Joel, but as an addendum and as a standalone sermon. But I want you to listen carefully as I read through this, and we'll point out just a couple of things, Started, starting with verse 28. Ah, oh, this, is, this is so beautiful. Points forward, Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, on all mankind. And then he expands. What, what, what does that mean? Does that mean every person without exception? No, it means every person without distinction. And your sons, this is believers now, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome, and here it is again, the day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This, this passage of Scripture points forward to one of the greatest events in redemptive history. It says afterward. Look at it in verse 28 again. It shall come to pass afterward. After what? After the, the death of the Messiah? After the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ? After that, it says that the Lord Jesus is going to pour out the Holy Spirit on His on his people. And this is the foundation of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 16. This 
And he's referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If, you, if you'll read that passage of Scripture, the Holy Spirit's been poured out on believers, and, and all, all of the people are gathered there. They see what's happening, but they're not believers, and so they haven't experienced it. And they say, well, what's the deal? Are these people drunk? And Peter says, no, this, the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is the answer to the how of verse 27. God says, I'm going to dwell in the midst of the people. How is he going to do that? By the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And this is how, listen, this is how he would inaugurate what is called in the New Testament over and over again. Now remember, we'll come back to this. It's referred to as the last days. And how God would fill and empower His people. If you go back before that, the promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And he does this for all of his people, as I said a few moments ago in reading this, without distinction, regardless of your gender, male or female, or your age, if you become a Christian when you're 90 or when you're 9 or your social status, whether you're a servant, a slave, or a free man, or your ethnic background, Jew and Gentile alike. Access to God and the distribution of all of His gifts are for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, let me just share something with you. The people in Joel's day simply could not have imagined this. It was absolutely radical. Now, we know from passages like Romans chapter 4 and others that salvation in the Old Testament was basically the same as in the New Testament. It was by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. But it wasn't the same in terms of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was very real and very evident in the Old Testament, but essentially he came upon, and, and generally speaking, on certain people like prophets and like kings for specific tasks. I was reading this last week I'm in my quiet time in 1 Samuel, and in chapter 9, verse 9, this is absolutely fascinating, and it illustrates the, the point that Joel is trying to make here about the Holy Spirit being possessed by every Christian. Listen to what it says. You can read along with me on the screen. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. You see, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to know what God was doing or what God was saying, you had to go and find a prophet. Now, let me say this. There are some groups who still, I think in theory or maybe in their doctrine, still hold to this. The Roman Catholic Church, for example. You have to go to a particular person to be able to 
be forgiven or absolved of your sins. You have to hear the words spoken through a particular kind of person, the priest. And yet I fear sometimes that even Baptists fall into this, that we have certain holy holy men that we turn to. You haven't been prayed for until you've been prayed for by the pastor, or he is the only one who can stand before us and tell us the truth, or he can pray over us for our last last rites. You see, now the Bible says, the New Testament says, there is no need for us to exclusively rely upon a man because each of us has the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing, meaning the Holy Spirit, that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. All who draw near to God for salvation have instant access. And maybe just as much as we emphasize the priesthood of all believers, we need to emphasize the prophethood of all believers. Now, what's the only, the only qualification for this? Do you have to go to seminary? Do you have to go through a special training course? No. The only qualification for this is salvation. And what, according to Joel, is the qualification for salvation? Listen to it again. He says it in verse 32, the first part of that verse. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. No other qualification. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved and the Holy Spirit regenerates you. He fills you. He gifts you. He empowers you. Again, I speak to someone who may not be a follower yet of Jesus Christ. He also calls you and woos you to be saved. Let me finish with this verse and then extend an invitation And then we'll pray, listen to a song, and then we will be dismissed with a benediction. Revelation 22, verse 17, almost at the end of the Bible, is is a marvelous invitation to all people everywhere. The Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. Believer, as Joel would, I encourage you, if you have drifted into a moralistic, therapeutic deism, you believe in God, but he is essentially here for you to make you happy. You think you'll go to heaven when you die, but your basic mode of operation in this life is simply to be nice. No, it's to follow the Lord. So I would say what Joel said to the people, God's covenant people then, return to me. Repent. Return to me. If you're not a believer in Christ today, you see the invitation, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. What's the price? Nothing. You can come. All you have to do is be thirsty. Are you thirsty enough to come to the one who can give you, not just here in Joel, like it says, water to drink, but the living water?
of Jesus Christ? Would you turn from your sins and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ today, right now, and be savingly joined to God through him? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that as we walk through it, we see the way that you have attended your word and, and it speaks to us. It's as relevant to us today as it was to the people back then, no matter what our situation speaks to us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the precious gift here of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we might all who listen to this word today respond, O oh God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to do what we simply cannot do for ourselves and respond to you in repentance and faith. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.